thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this month we're exploring the science of our special senses. So far we've heard how our ears work, we've looked the visual system in the eye, and this week we're getting our teeth into the science of taste. Plus, news of a discovery that could rewrite the story of human origins, how some antibiotics can also block viruses, and how ants keep infections at bay in their colonies. I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. The story of how and when the first anatomically modern humans migrated out of Africa and spread around the world has been challenged this week by a new fossil discovery from Saudi Arabia. A bone from a middle finger, together with hundreds of stone tools, has been uncovered and dated to a time much earlier than scientists had believed that our ancestors first left the African continent. Georgia spoke with study author Hugh Grocutt. The textbook view of human origins at the moment suggests that our species, Homo sapiens, evolved in Africa and that all non-Africans are descended from a migration out of Africa about 50 or 60,000 years ago, probably following the coastline out of Africa. And we know that about 100,000 years ago, there was a very short-lived localised expansion to the Levant. And this is mostly known from a few sites in um, what is today northern Israel. But the idea is this is just a sort of flash in the pan, it's very localised, and that really that's irrelevant to the major story of how Eurasians came to be. Right, and what have you found then that challenges this notion? So we've been working in Saudi Arabia as part of a big project for almost 10 years now. And until very recently, we knew almost nothing about the area. We found over the last few years lots of archaeological sites and lots of animal fossils, but we were always missing human fossils. So we found a site called Al Worcester, and there we found a human finger bone. It's the middle bone of the middle finger, and it's dated to 90,000 years ago. So even though it's only one fossil, it's enough to identify the species. So it's it's our species, Homo sapiens. So it's um, showing that we were in that area 90,000 years ago. Right. So you've placed at least one human at a place where we didn't previously believe there would have been humans at this time. Yes, that's right. And um It was a very different sort of environment to where we knew people were living. We knew they were in the forests on the sort of doorstep of Africa in the Levant. And now we know they were deep in in the interior of Arabia. Although it's only one fossil, we found hundreds of stone tools. So we know there were quite a few people living at this site and, and there were many other sites like it in the area. How did you date it and how are you sure it's human? I'm guessing if it's just a sort of finger bone, it's it's not a particularly obvious fossil, if that makes sense. Mm. We got very lucky, really. Um, In this region, there are sort of two possibilities, us or Neanderthals. It fortunately turns out that this bone is quite different in us and Neanderthals. Our middle finger bone is more narrow and elongate, whereas a Neanderthal bone is um, shorter and squatter. But to really be sure, we did CT scanning to get a 3D model And then we compared this using a technique called geometric morphometrics to the same bone from various humans, various extinct hominins, and even things like monkeys and um, chimpanzees. And this very clearly showed that the fossil aligned with Homo sapiens. It's a very similar shape. I mean, if I hold it to my finger, it's exactly the same shape and size. With the dating... 
So we used a method called uranium series dating. When a bone is buried in the ground, it absorbs uranium. And over time, this uranium decays into thorium. And we can measure the, the precise ratio of these two isotopes to determine the age. It decays in a, in a predictable rate. So this gave us a date of 88,000 years ago. And to confirm that date, we used other techniques to date the sediments of the site and animal bones at the site as well. And all of these techniques uh, agreed with each other that the fossil was about 90,000 years, which was great because often different techniques are applied and they don't agree with each other. So it gets complicated. So this is a very well-dated fossil in a very well-dated site. What does this tell us then? What can we now infer about human history? So I think the major change is that the sort of textbook view suggesting we left Africa about 50 or 60,000 years ago was based on the idea that we couldn't leave Africa until there'd been some kind of high-tech, you know, sort of revolution, a human revolution. So there are different forms of this, but for example, some people argue that we needed bows and arrows or complex symbolic material culture to survive in Eurasia, which seems sort of odd, but that was a common view. And what we found is that we were spreading much earlier using very simple kinds of material culture. So our migration wasn't based on some kind of technological breakthrough. It was based much more on patterns of climate change. So we know periodically Northeast Africa and Arabia witnessed very extreme climate change. Basically, monsoonal rains moved far inland, and this transformed the area. Um, so there were lakes and rivers and grasslands and abundant animals. And it was this transformed landscape that early humans could follow. So it changes the narrative from a kind of human revolution to one based much more on the environment and climate. So I suppose you could say that archaeologists are quite literally giving the prevailing theory on human migration the finger. That was Hugh Grocutt. He's at the University of Oxford and the paper describing that work just came out in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. Now, common colds need common sense, not antibiotics, or so the saying goes. This is because colds are caused by viruses, which don't respond to antibiotics, which are for bacteria. But is there more to this story? Now, a new study has shown that some classes of antibiotic agent, as well as killing bacteria, can put our cells into an antiviral state, preventing viruses from growing. And if we can work out how, this might help us to develop new forms of antiviral drug. Izzy Clark spoke to Akiko Iwasaki, who made the discovery. We often use antibiotics to treat um, bacterial infection that don't resolve. So, for instance, uh, a doctor might prescribe antibiotics for a bacterial infection in the throat or uh, something that is festering a wound in the, in the skin and a variety of other things. And it was known that antibiotics are very specific to bacteria, and they're really designed to kill specific bacterial groups. However, our finding shows that certain types of antibiotics, known as the aminoglycosides, can trigger antiviral responses in mice. And we've tested the effect of antibiotic in variety of viruses, including herpes simplex virus, which is a causative agent for genital herpes. We tested this against influenza virus infection, which is cause of flu, and a Zika virus, which can be transmitted through sexual contact as well. And in all cases, application of neomycin prior to viral infection protected the mice against these viruses. That's amazing. So basically, you've applied a type of antibiotic, which is in its name, more linked to tackling bacteria, but you've seen this uh, sort of antiviral response in a wide range of viruses. So how exactly does this work and how did you come across this? So we took the antibiotics, the neomycin, and put it onto the skin of the mice, just as you would do with neosporin that you would buy from pharmacy, where you would apply the cream onto the skin. We took a similar approach where we, we apply the neomycin onto the vaginal cavity, or in some cases, we applied it through the nose for infections like influenza virus. So it wasn't swallowed by the mice. As soon as the neomycin was applied to the skin, 
what happens is that the host cells, which in this case is the skin cells, take up antibiotics and induce signals to allow leukocytes, which are these white blood cells that are circulating in the blood, to come into that area. And these leukocytes then take up the antibiotics in the skin and start producing factors known as uh, type 1 interferons. And these interferons can then bind to neighboring cells to promote protection against viral infection. So would we see this response in just any type of antibiotic? Uh, No, that's not correct. We actually tested several antibiotics and found that only one of them had this antiviral effect. We really don't want to promote overuse and misuse of antibiotics because that can give rise to bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. And that's a huge problem in the medical field. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, this is true in mice. What about humans? How strong is this effect of neomycin? Yes, we would love to know what happens in humans. Uh, We haven't applied neomycin in human skin to see what happens, but we've added the antibiotics on human cells in uh, tissue culture and show similar kinds of interferon production from human cells, suggesting that perhaps similar kinds of effects can be seen in humans. Wow. So, I mean, why is this important and what does it mean for the future? In the future, what we'd like to do is to use our findings to find new drugs uh, that can be used against viruses. And as I mentioned earlier, we are not promoting the use of antibiotics for all viral infections. However, if we can understand the molecules involved in inducing this antiviral state, we can actually make new drugs that can selectively kill viruses without affecting the bacteria. And that would be great to do. So maybe there will be a cure for the common cold one day. That was Akiko Iwasaki from Yale School of Medicine. And that paper was published in the journal Nature Microbiology. It's not just the use of a technology. It's also the use of the data and um, what is necessary to enable a safe, socially compatible use of these technologies. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're returning to the scene of the crime with another look at the latest techniques in the world of forensic genetics. Can we really predict physical features from our DNA? Plus, our gene of the month might be more at home at a rave. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. Still to come on The Naked Scientist, how social insects carry out infection control and we get our teeth into the science of taste. Now, we're following up with the ongoing story of social media and our data use. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has been answering some very tough questions recently from US politicians in the wake of the announcement that information about millions of Facebook users was passed to a third party. That was Cambridge Analytica. This has got many of us thinking about how much companies like Facebook know about us and also how they're using that information. Part of the problem stems from the fact that the law has been slow to keep up with the pace of technology. But on the 25th of May 2018, the European Union are going to introduce a raft of new data protection measures. This goes under the umbrella of the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, that will address some of these issues. Richard Clayton is a security researcher in the Cambridge University Computer Laboratory. Why are companies like Facebook collecting this information and and how do they use it and hold it? Facebook is basically an advertising company. They exist to make money, like all companies. They make money by putting adverts in front of people and they make more money if the adverts go in front of people who are interested in the topics of the adverts and if people click on them, if people buy the products which are advertised. And the more you know about the people on your platform, the better you can place the adverts. One person pointed out, uh, I think one of the US politicians who is questioning Mark Zuckerberg, pointed out that actually the reach of Facebook extends well beyond Facebook's own website, doesn't it? Because there are all these like buttons all over the internet. So on The Naked Scientist, for example, we could, we haven't, but we could have a button saying, I like this. And that would tell Facebook that a person on that page likes that particular piece of content, which means Facebook is harvesting information about people from well beyond the scope of its own online realm. 
Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, also many apps or many websites let you sign in using your Facebook credentials. And again, Facebook learns the information which comes from there. And indeed, certainly in the past, it's been the position that if people signed in with Facebook, then where you'd signed into was able to see information about the people who had then arrived on their particular site. And the EU's new approach to data protection, which is coming in shortly, will that have teeth and will it make a difference to this sort of behaviour? It certainly has teeth and it has made a lot of companies concentrate very hard on whether or not they're going to meet the new rules uh, because fines under the GDPR uh, can be up to 20 million euros or 4% of global turnover whichever is higher. And if you're Facebook with an enormous global turnover, an eye-watering amount of money which they risk if they don't correctly behave under the new legislation. One other interesting thing I noticed in reading the terms of the legislation is that it extends beyond the shores of Europe. So even if you're not in the EU, if you are a company anywhere handling data from an EU citizen, you're potentially liable to that act. No, it's even wider than that because it applies not just to EU citizens but anybody who happens to be in Europe. So if you're an American and you come to Europe, you will suddenly get new rights which you would not have if you stayed in the United States. Uh, And effectively that means that people are treating this as a global law. It sounds like a jolly good thing, doesn't it? But what's to stop someone going to a country that does not respect EU values, EU law, for instance, Russia. I mean, there are various entities which are now based in Russia online, and they do that because they know they're beyond the reach of various laws and so on. Well, that's obviously a problem. But large companies tend to be multinational. So even if there are no engineers in the EU, then there may well be a sales operation here, and therefore there's money or there's people that you can grab. And we've seen in the case of people breaking laws like anti-spam legislation that we can scoop them up at the airport when they go on holiday to Barcelona. So even though the EU acts within Europe, are other countries, notwithstanding some that don't want to, but are other countries signed up to this? So if, if a person in America does something which breaches EU rules, can the EU reach over to America and get them or South America or Australia? Um, possibly not unless they come here. But equally, the problem the EU sees is people behaving within the EU and then the large multinationals, the household names, uh, that they produce appropriate systems. And it's quite clear that they're going to, they're doing a lot of engineering at the moment in order to make sure that they meet the May deadline and you will get all sorts of new rights. You'll see new permission things popping up on screens. You'll see that you can do new things like export all of your data. But surely if, if I'm a hacker and I break into your company and you've got a million people's data on your computer, I steal it. I'm not going to give a toss about what the EU says. I'll just use that data anyway, but you will get the bill. So isn't this kind of penalising the guys who are trying to do the right thing, even though some people who don't want to do the right thing have actually done the wrong thing? No, it's penalising the people who've kept your data insecurely in such a way that people can break in and steal it. And the threat of the very large fines uh, means that people are actually going to concentrate on this and will treat data in an appropriate way. Richard, thank you very much. We'll see what happens on the 25th of May. That's Richard Clayton. He's from the University of Cambridge. And some of the data you might want to protect are the hordes and hordes of embarrassing selfies you've been taking. It's time to join Stuart Higgins to find out how the space race spawned the camera phone. What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? Welcome to Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, the mini-series that explores the spin-offs from space technology that are being used in life on Earth. I'm Dr Stuart Higgins. This episode, we're talking about how the need to make better cameras for spacecraft gave us camera phones and selfies. In the 1990s at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, physicist and engineer Eric Fossum and his team were working on the problem of digital cameras for satellites. For years, satellites have been beaming back some of the most spectacular images of our universe, but the current technology was proving problematic. At the time, early digital cameras used charged coupled devices, otherwise known as CCDs. In a CCD, each pixel is effectively a tiny square of the material silicon. A voltage applied to the silicon pushes out charges, leaving a charge-free region at the surface. If a photon of light strikes this area, it generates an electrical charge. 
By varying the voltage between adjacent regions, this packet of charge is passed along the row of pixels until eventually it's read by a circuit that converts the charges into a digital signal, which is used to make the digital image. And while this technology is great for its high sensitivity, it was causing space scientists problems. The sensors used a lot of power and were sensitive to radiation that could cause noise in the images. The scientists wanted a way to reduce the required power supply and radiation shielding to make the spacecraft lighter and therefore easier to get into space. So Eric and his team set about developing a new technology called active pixel sensors. Rather than passing the charges from each pixel along a line, every pixel in an active pixel sensor has a tiny circuit built into the back of it, which converts the light directly into a digital signal. These digital signals can be read out in parallel more quickly than in a CCD, and the overall circuit needs less power to operate. The sensors could also be manufactured using the same production lines as silicon microprocessors, enabling cheap production. Cheap, low-power image sensors were initially used in webcams, but it was the advent of the camera phone that really allowed them to take off. The technology was spun out into a company led by engineer and entrepreneur Sabrina Kameni, one of the team from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It's been licensed to major image sensor manufacturers and advanced to the point where a smartphone in our pockets can now produce broadcast-quality video and images. The ability to readily take photos has revolutionised the modern world, perhaps epitomised by the Oxford Dictionary's 2013 word of the year, selfie. So that's how developing better cameras to put on satellites for space exploration led to the low-cost, low-power image sensors that are used in many of our modern devices. That was Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists. My name is Dr Stuart Higgins, and you can find more episodes online at nakedscientists.com slash downtoearth. So next time you see someone taking a selfie, you know who to blame. Thank you, Stuart. And next time on Down to Earth, Stuart finds out how technology developed to look for life on Mars is now helping bomb disposal experts back here on Earth. Finally, in the news section... This winter in the Northern Hemisphere, hospitals and care homes have faced one of their worst flu seasons ever in terms of numbers. Transmission of respiratory illnesses tends to occur much more readily in these sorts of places because there's a very high density of people, so it's easy for them to pass infections among themselves. But there are other classes of animals that also live in very high density, and yet they've developed ingenious infection control strategies to ensure that this doesn't happen to them. Chris Pull has been looking at what ants do. We know that social insects, um, so that's ants, bees, wasps and termites, have evolved collective disease defences to try and control epidemics in their colonies. But a lot of the work so far has looked at how they prevent infections. So, for example, they groom one another and they use antimicrobial disinfectants to prevent individuals which come into contact with pathogens from actually contracting an infection. But what we wanted to know is how they actually prevent successful infections from spreading. So in cases where these sort of first-line defences fail to prevent disease, what can a colony do to prevent the infection spreading to others? How do they know that they have an outbreak situation in the first place? So what we've been able to show through our research using chemical analyses is that um, they can actually smell um, when another individual is sick. So we've shown that sick individuals, when they have an infection and when you also inject them with an immune elicitor, increase cuticular hydrocarbons and this attracts the attention of ants in the colony and triggers a response. So this is like ant bio, isn't it? These cuticular hydrocarbons that they can, they can sniff on each other. Yes, exactly. So they use them typically to tell if you're a member of the colony or not. But we've been able to show now that they actually also change them in response to infection and that can actually tell others who's sick. So what is the situation when they pick up that this chemical trace or chemical signature of disease is there? How do they respond? It's quite interesting. So they sort of have this multi-component behaviour. So we were looking at infections in pupa and the pupae are the sort of developmental stage in between a larvae and an adult ant. They're going through metamorphosis and they're encased in these silk cocoons. And what we found is that upon detecting an infection, the ants will actually break open this silk cocoon and then they start biting the infected pupa and then they spray poison, which is made up of formic acid and acetic acid, from a gland at the end of their abdomen. And this ensures that the fungus or the pathogen growing inside um, the infected brood can't grow anymore. So the acids actually seem to kill this fungus, which is inside the body of the pupa. And it seems like they do all this because 
the poison itself can't actually penetrate into the body of the pupa unless the cocoon is removed and unless they make these holes in the body of the pupa itself. And can you demonstrate that this really does mitigate or curtail the spread? So in other words, if you abolish this behaviour, it would be curtains for the colony. Yeah, so we've actually been able to show by mimicking a situation where they fail to detect and destroy these infections. So we simply kept ants with an infectious pupa. 40% of these small groups of ants actually contracted the infection and became infectious themselves. And you can imagine that in a full colony setup, that can very quickly um, lead to a sort of huge mass breakout of this disease. But by performing these behaviours, we actually saw that there was zero disease transmission. Do other social insects that have similar problems deal with it the same way or do they have a different strategy? So we do see different strategies. So in honeybees, because they live in these hives and they forage on the wing, what they can do is to simply take diseased brood out of the nest, fly away a few hundred metres and just drop it somewhere in the vegetation. And because they forage on plants and they forage for wide distances around the colony, the chances that they re-encounter that infectious corpse are really low. The termites, on the other hand, what they do is actually eat their dead. So they live encased in these sort of pieces of wood which are rotting away. And for them, it's hard to remove things from the wood because they really live inside it. So what they tend to do is to actually eat their diseased individuals. But at the end of the day, they all use more or less a similar strategy. So they're all trying to detect very early these infections and to either remove or to destroy or to eat them before they have the chance to become infectious. That's quite an undertaking strategy, isn't it? (laughs) Actually eating your dead. But how do you think this evolved in the first place? Because it's quite a complicated behaviour, isn't it? It involves the ability to do chemical detection and recognition and then to have evolved a strategy that is itself successful in mitigating the threat. Yeah, so we think that these behaviours have evolved because socialist economies are like a super organism. So they behave and they reproduce like a single um, organism in itself. And in a way, they're very similar then to a multicellular body, like a frog or a human being. And in the same way, when a human has an infected cell in its body, you have this immune reaction to remove that infected cell. And we see then common processes in sort of multicellular organisms and these sort of superorganismal insect societies. And we think that common evolutionary processes were at play um, during the evolution of both multicellular organisms and superorganisms and being able to basically detect and remove elements which might harm the entire organism in itself were necessary sort of prerequisites or at least were necessary to evolve in order to um, ensure that like, you have the survival of the whole over its parts. Amazing stuff, isn't it? Chris Paul there, he's at Royal Holloway, and that study was just published in eLife. And if you'd like to find out more about any of the news stories that we've been covering this week, the transcripts and the references to the science papers underpinning them can be found on our website, that's nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and this month we're exploring our senses. This week we're digging our teeth into taste. We'll be finding out how different flavours are created, why wine and cheese are a match made in heaven, and how our taste preferences have developed and evolved over time. But first, how does our tongue recognise a taste we like or dislike? Rebecca Ford is Assistant Professor of Sensory Science at the University of Nottingham. She's with us now. So Rebecca, talk me through it. When I eat something, when I'm munching on a bar of chocolate, how do I actually sense that lovely taste? Well, it's no surprise it's all happening in your mouth, um, but it probably will be quite surprising to you that there are only just five basic tastes. So, for example, with your chocolate, it'll be the sweetness and the bitterness that are probably the most apparent. Um, And if you look at your tongue in the mirror, you can see lots of little tiny bumps um, along your tongue. They're less red in colour to the rest of your tongue, and you've got a lot of them at the very tongue tip, the anterior part of the tongue. And these papillae, they house taste buds. So taste buds is the term that we commonly know of. And within those taste buds, we have lots of taste receptor cells. As you chew your chocolate, the tastants, so the sweetness from the sugars and, and the bitter compounds, they become dissolved in the saliva. 
these different compounds, they enter the taste pore of the taste bud on the tongue. So there's a little taste pore. So as they get dissolved in the saliva, they have to enter that taste pore. And then there's a cascade of different reactions then that happens within the taste cell itself and that then sends a, a neural impulse up the, the nerves and then finally to the brain, to the gustatory cortex. And, and gustatory is the, the scientific name for, for taste, essentially. Right, so there's there's the things we can see when we go in front of the mirror and they house these taste buds, which then themselves house these little cells which respond to the various uh, five tastes. That's exactly right. And so what's the difference between tasting something you like or you don't like? So, well, we're actually all born with kind of innate preferences, you know, to sense out things that are nutritive and non-nutritive. And, you know, for example, things that might be poisonous. Um, but essentially, as we grow up and we learn these different things, what we like and what we dislike is very much about the brain. So we detect things in the mouth, but our brain then interprets those responses in terms of what we like and what we dislike. And you mentioned the tasting part is very much happening on the tongue, but the nose is involved as well. So what role does smell play? Yeah, it's so important, actually, um, and more important than probably people realise. So it's what we call sort of taste aroma interactions. And normally when you're consuming some food, you very, very rarely would just have taste in isolation on its own, unless you were just to add a teaspoon of sugar into water, for example. So if we take the example of a strawberry, as you consume that strawberry, as you're chewing it, you're getting sugars released, you're getting acids being released, and they're sensed, of course, in the mouth. But what's happening exactly the same time as you're chewing the aroma compounds are actually becoming airborne and they're getting transported up to your olfactory bulb which is very high up in your nose at the base of your brain and the olfactory bulb senses the different aromas and this is all happening at exactly the same time so your brain tells you it's all happening in your mouth it's something that's called oral referral and this is one of the reasons why when you've got a cold nothing tastes quite right because it's all happening in the brain and it's exactly the same thing you know when you have one of those beautiful smelling fruit teas they smell absolutely amazing they've got this lovely strawberry aroma when you drink it it's just not quite right and that's because the the sugar and the acids aren't there I've always wondered that. Fruit tea always smells so good and then you taste it and it's just a bit bland, isn't it? (laughs) Of course, you've got all the aroma there, you've just not got the taste. So they're so important. They go hand in hand. Right. And so how do we tell one taste from another? Well, the majority of the evidence shows that each taste receptor cell is specifically tuned. So it has one taste receptor on its membrane, some that are capable of detecting sweetness, those are capable of detecting bitterness, umami, salty, uh, sourness. So contrary to what you might have been taught at school, where there are distinct parts of the tongue that are responsible for responding to different tastes, that is completely incorrect. So within each of our taste buds, we have taste receptor cells that are specifically tuned to each one of the tastes, but we have all of those taste receptor cells within a taste bud. Um, So essentially, there isn't that localisation that we were taught when we were at school. That's just down to a miscommunication of information. Unfortunately, um, a paper that was published that was miscommunicating some findings. I remember that taste map well and being um, and thinking it was a bit strange when you tasted sweets um, or different spots in your tongue and thinking this doesn't seem quite right. And so what's in something to make your tongue respond and say this is bitter? Is it a different chemical or is it the shape of them? What, what, what's different about them? Exactly, it's different chemical compounds. So, for example, caffeine that's in coffee, quinine that's in tonic water, and then we have things like isoalpha acids that are in beer. There are different chemical compounds, and we have different bitter receptors, all capable of actually, you know, receiving that information from those different chemical compounds, and then sending those signals to the brain, telling us that it's a bitter compound. Whereas we tend to use taste as a term to describe everything that we're experiencing in our mouth when we consume things, which is a very complex um, scenario of lots of different signals that are actually being sent to the brain concurrently. So we have taste being one of them. We have all those aromas that we were talking about being sent to the olfactory bulb in the nose. Um, We also have all these texture receptors that are innovated all over the tongue, the soft palate as well. And they're sending lots of different signals about the creaminess, the thickness, maybe the spiciness. And of course, we have temperature receptors as well that give us information about the temperature of the food or drink. And those five tastes you mentioned, bitter, salty, sweet, sour and umami, umami is a brilliant word, but are those the only five tastes there are? Is that everything? 
Well, at the moment, yes. Um, but for something to be classified as a taste, it's got to be distinct from, from a, the other taste. So it's got to have stimuli that are responsible from a taste that's very different to the others. There's got to be taste receptors that are able to send a signal to the brain. And there's got to be a perceptual independence from all the other taste qualities. So it's got to be clearly identifiable, essentially. And all of those five basic tastes tick all of those boxes. Now, there are some other ones that have got a lot of evidence to suggest that they would be the candidates for the six basic taste, for example, fatty acids, carbohydrates, and this wonderful sounding taste that we know called kakumi. And another great word. It is. And that really is an example of something people describe as kind of a rich taste. Uh, it's almost where the way people describe it is like a mouthfeel. Um, but it's not very easily defined. And because it's not clearly identifiable, that's one of the reasons why we're struggling to, at the moment to have enough data to say that it really ticks all of those boxes. Fatty acids, carbohydrates, again, none of them quite meet all this criteria, although there's a lot of scientific evidence that ticks some of those boxes. So, coming to a tongue near you, a brand new taste, potentially. That's all made me very hungry. Rebecca Ford, thank you very much. Thank you. It's making me hungry too. Luckily, we do have some rather nice-looking treats lined up for later on in the programme. So far, we've explored how tastes work, but how have they developed and evolved over time? And can we attribute our taste preferences to our genes. UCL's Andrea Smith thinks we can. She looks at how genes and the environment we live in affect our food and drink choices. Andrea, welcome to the programme. So first of all, how might genes influence the process? It links back to the human's evolutionary origins, where when the human was still in prehistoric times, it was important for the human to taste and sense the environment where ultimately the ability to taste was acting as the perfect survival strategy. So being able to identify sweet tastes were incredibly important as they indicated food that is safe and will give you energy quickly. On the other hand, being able to taste bitter foods and having evolved the taste receptors that identify bitter foods would indicate the foods that are poisonous and potentially harmful and being able to detect them quickly would also select the individuals that could survive and procreate. Indeed, because lots of the chemicals, these plant alkaloids that mm. we we try to avoid because they taste horrible are the ones that are poisonous. Things like deadly nightshade, the taste would not be good. But then again, there are some examples where we actually end up quite liking things that we should be averse to, shouldn't we? Like uh, caffeine is another plant alkaloid. It's there to poison insects, but we're hooked on the stuff. And it's very bitter. If you taste coffee for the first time, it's very, very bitter. And people don't like it. But the interesting thing about when you drink coffee, over time we can learn to associate the kind of invigorating effect of caffeine and bitterness to feeling alert. And we learn to like it. It's certainly, I've learned to like it. I can, I can endorse that comment. Now, given that in the modern era, we, we don't have the problem of not knowing where our next calorie is coming from. We have supermarkets. Um, we also tend to have someone watching out what we should and shouldn't eat, and we educate kids what to avoid and so on. Why do we still have these strong drivers towards what we do and don't like? Well, we unfortunately cannot change our DNA. So what we have been given and our universal ability to taste is still within us. And it's also important to think about the fact that we have our DNA, which has given us our receptors now in our environment. But there are many other influences that also shape what we like and do not like. So there are other senses. So in our environment right now, we do not only rely on our taste preferences. And there are also genetic differences in sight and um, the pleasure pathways in our brain that still shape this behavior. So uh, in, in our environment right now, where we are being targeted by all these delicious foods, we are essentially in this crazy environment where we are being exploited and our genetic tendency to like a sweet and fatty foods is just completely expressed. Do you know the genes which, which govern our intake in this way? And are there any populations who eat stuff which, compared with other populations, you, you, you'd think, wow, they like that. Why on earth do they like that? And you can pin their appeal for certain foodstuffs on a genetic cause? Um, 
It's more complex, unfortunately, than just having one single gene that regulates your food intake. It's a, this whole storm of genetic differences and a whole range of taste receptors that influence our behaviours. I think when you compare populations, it's really important to think about um, what the foods and drinks are that people are exposed to and their parents are exposed to that explain these differences more than actually the genetics when you compare over time or between different cultures. Now, Andrew, personally, as I've got a bit older, there are certain things which I detested when I was little and I actually quite like now I've got older. Now, that can't be genetic because, you know, I, I might be evolving a bit, but I'm not evolving that quickly. So there must be more to this than just genes, what we do and don't like as we age. Indeed. So everybody is born with this underlying universal ability to taste but it emphasizes that they're actually our lifestyle behaviors and our environment also overrules and displaces these genetic influences over time so I think just touching back on that coffee for example which is a very bitter taste and most people when they first taste coffee really dislike bitterness but over time when they realize that drinking coffee gives you this feeling of being alert and having a lot of energy you associated with uh, feeling great and you learn to love that bitterness. And so you think that basically your your genes endow you with a sort of template of things you generically do and don't like. Yeah. But then as we go through life and we have life experiences, we can paint on that blank sheet, that blank canvas if you like. And uh, And so there are some things where we'll override the genetic guidance because we've discovered actually it might be incompatible with what our genes are saying, but it's quite nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any particular other examples you bring to mind, perhaps personal um, ones? Alcohol is also another typical example, which a lot of people, when they first drink alcohol, it doesn't taste great. I remember drinking beer or wine for the first time and I hated it and I thought I would never like it. But then when you associate it, for example, also to a social situation, you know, having a laugh with your friends, you start to really appreciate the flavour as well over time. I don't know. I never had any problems with that. Uh, perhaps that explains a lot, but uh, also <laughs> explains why we have some of the most expensive wines you can have sitting here in the studio. And we're going to taste them later on. Andrea, thank you very much. That's Andrea Smith from University College London. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. Still to come, why do cheese and wine go so well together? And we meet the super taster of the animal kingdom. But first, when it comes to eating food, chances are you'll find yourself surrounded by flavours, especially when you're having sweeties like I like to do. But how do companies create them in the lab? Izzy Clark has been finding out. As a child, I loved Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and genuinely believed that it was only a matter of time for Willy Wonka's three-course dinner chewing gum to hit the shelves. And obviously, I'm still waiting. So whilst a trip to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory isn't quite possible, Cambridge have their very own flavour factory. Albert Reming, the managing director of Taste Flavourings, boiled their work down for me. Flavours are mimicking real nature. We always use the, the example as a strawberry. In a strawberry, there are certain chemical molecules that determine that the strawberry tastes what it is. It can either be a green one, it can be a, a very sweet one, it can be a ripe one. And those molecules, that, that chemistry, basically we try to mimic in our industry so that people always have a strawberry-flavoured product that always tastes the same. Flavours can be natural and non-natural or artificial. What makes flavours natural is definition. We're strongly regulated by the EU on what we can call natural and what is not. So some flavours are developed as natural flavours and use certain molecules which are natural and thereby become a natural flavour and other flavours don't. Laid out in front of me were jars and jars of clear liquids, each a different flavour that Albert's company used to create sweets, drinks, cakes, ice cream, you name it. We've got the raspberry. All of my five a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But in addition to fruit, the team also create what they call brown flavours. We're talking coffee, toffee, butterscotch, and my favourite, tiramisu. Clearly, this has got coffee notes in and it's got chocolate notes in. Oh my gosh, I'm definitely smelling coffee and I'm definitely getting that sort of 
punch of an alcoholic element. Now, you can either start from scratch on these flavors or you can take a coffee flavor that you've already got, a chocolate flavor that you've already got, and start mixing things together, adding bits. And that's the creative process that our flavorists use to actually make these flavors. Flavors deal with your smell. If you pinch your nose, you don't taste anything, people say. But basically what it is, is the flavors that are volatiles, there are molecules that kind of go airborne and go into your olfactory gland in the top of your nose, basically don't get perceived, and therefore you don't taste anything. We decided to put this whole smell-taste relation to the test. Quite a lot of the flavor is locked up, so to speak, in this gummy. So if you lick it, and then you smell again, then you'll find that you get a bit more odour of it than just smelling a dry sweet where most of the flavour is actually sitting on the inside. Right, let's give this a go. So, no, I actually can't quite work it out. It's citrusy, I think. I'll go straight in. Oh, it's orange. It's like a a sweet orange. Mmm. It's very yummy, though. Whilst I tucked into a few more sweets, Albert explained that they also come across a few challenging and rather bizarre flavour requests. We've recently done an avocado. How do you describe an avocado? It's a bit green, it's a bit fatty, and how do you mimic that if somebody wants to stick it in a boiled sweet? We've done um, a rancid flavour. So basically to make something taste a bit more rancid, as it is going off, I think it went into mayonnaise. I think our customer who's actually putting it in the mayonnaise, wants that because their customers want it like that. Everyone's taste is unique, I suppose. But how can flavour companies monitor what goes into their creations? And what if something isn't quite right? It was off to the lab. So are you able to talk me through this rather noisy equipment right here? What, what is making that rather large hum? Um, the hum is a vacuum pump that basically creates a vacuum under which these mixtures get analysed, where we can run through flavour samples. The equipment breaks it down and refers what it finds to a database, which basically gives us a rough idea on what's in it and at what quantities to make sure that we have included all the components that should be in. So as soon as something comes out of the factory, we run it through the machine, we pick up the previous batch of that product and we compare. So that's one of the steps that we use to make sure that flavors are always correct and always in line with the previous sample. So Albert is holding this tiny little tube. It looks a bit like an injection, actually. And yeah. is that just so you can control these really tiny droplets that yeah. then get put into this rather large machine next to us now? Yeah. This is, the content of this injector is 10 microliters. And so how much product would go into, say, one of these boiled sweets that we've seen? That depends how strong the flavour is, but also how strongly flavoured the customer wants it to be. Generally between one and three grams per thousand. So one kilo makes a tonne of sweets. Gosh, so that's not very much at all. It's not very much, no. It's definitely the finishing touch. It's definitely not part of the bulk of the food. It's very small dose rates. Once the flavour has been analysed and given the all clear, it's then taken to the application lab, which is where these flavours in their liquid form are then put into something like a cake or gum. But when it comes to creating the perfect sweet, it's test, test and retest. Right, so we have more labs here. Things do change as they are applied in the end product. The end product, which you call the matrix, does something to flavours. It can either enhance it or it might implode and it might disappear. It might not be powerful enough. To give you an example, when we make hard-boiled sweets, the boiling process does something to the flavour because the flavour is volatile because it needs to be volatile, otherwise you don't smell it and you, you don't taste it. So it gives us a bit of a better idea and maybe that will lead to some further adjustments that we need to make. On the subject of sweets... Sugar tax is something that comes up quite often. So is there a way that you could possibly make a sweet actually sweeter, but not with as much sugar, perhaps? You know, we're talking here about the holy grail. Sweet without sugar, fat without fat, salt without salt. With flavours, they can definitely boost certain properties. But you will never be able to mimic the mouthfeel of sugar, which in sweet is, is maybe as high as 80 90 percent or in a drink where it's as high as 10 percent so yes you can 
tweak things, you can enhance things, but you can never replace it and you, you will always need the real thing too. Shoot, still no magic way to avoid sugar then. Wouldn't that be nice? That was Albert Reming from Taste Flavourings in Cambridge speaking to Izzy Clark. A rich, fruity body with hints of vanilla and a smooth chocolate texture layered over a very long finish. Now, for many, wine tasting and wine appreciation sounds like a foreign language. But there are indeed many different grape varieties. The climate where winemaking grapes grow makes a huge difference. And even the microbes that live in the soil around the roots of the vine also affect the flavour. And with us to explore how and whether we really can pick up on these subtle and rather delicate vinicultural nuances is Claire Bryant, who, as well as being an expert on how the immune system works, is also a wine specialist. And I'm very pleased to say she has brought some beautiful samples with her. So, Claire, when we actually taste a wine, what's actually going on in the mouth when you're tasting these things? So we're experiencing a very large, complex chemical reaction. So there are about 400 aromas in wine, so that's the nasal part of the procedure. In each wine, there's at least 27 different organic acids, 23 different types of alcohol, 80 esters and aldehydes, 16 sugars and a long list of vitamins and minerals to name but a few. You're going to demonstrate some of the principles that are at play when we put wine in our mouth. You've got three little tests for us to do. Yeah. What's the first one? So the first one is to taste the difference between a taut and a fat wine. Taut and yes, fat. Yes, taut and fat. So Educated? This is, yeah. <laughs> well, what I'm talking about is richness. So you can get some wines taste rich and others. And this is nicely illustrated with Chardonnay. So Chardonnay is a white wine grape, widely grown around the world. It is also very good at taking on the flavours of barrels and oak and various other things. So richness in Chardonnay can involve some or all of the following processes, including the oak. Oak's very important. It gives vanilla, toasty oak, that kind of flavour. There's also a malactic fermentation, which is a secondary fermentation after the primary event, which softens the acid. And there's also lees ageing, which is where the yeast, residual yeast particles sort of self-implode and they release some sugars and amino acids, and that also causes richness as well. So our first wine is a taut modern Chardonnay. Okay, so it's from Margaret River. It's called Western Flame Australia. Tree. Western Australia, indeed. You're decanting out little taste it for yep. each of us, a little soupçon a for, little for soupçon. Georgia and I to, to try. And so if you smell the Chardonnay, first of all, you will... Oh, it's, it's very smoky. It is smoky, yes, it is smoky. And th- this comes from, because there is some oak in this wine. And you can smell a bit of citrus, you can smell some, some nutty oak, you can smell potentially the smoky struck match, so that's a good effort. Mm. And then if you taste it, you'll find a lemon citrus. And then moving over to a bit of dried stone fruit, a pear, grapefruit, melon, figs. Mm, it doesn't quite taste how it smells. It, it, no. If it tasted like it smelled, I think you'd be a bit... <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct, correct. But then if you take the second version, which comes from South Africa, so this is a, a Lanzarac Chardonnay from Stellenbosch. It's much less smelly. There's much lo- mm. much less to smell on, about this one. Which is interesting. Stronger flavour as well. It but does. it's much stronger. Yeah. It's, it's a bigger, it's a fatter, isn't it? There's, it fills is. your mouth more. Yeah, when you... that's the point. It's a, it's a fatter, more oaked wine. And is that the oak that's done that? That's Partially giving it that oak, vanilla because yeah. it's quite a big. Yeah, it is quite a big. big there's a hit. vanilla hit there, yeah. and there's and it is fruitier, but it smells. It does. It's interesting. It smells less. It smells. Yeah, it does. It's, it's a more restrained smell. So adding the oak gives it those stronger. Yep. Flavors. Yep. And it's it's a more heavily oaked wine than the first wine we tasted. Why didn't the strength of the smell match with the strength of the flavour? It doesn't always do that. Sometimes it also depends upon how long you've had the wine in the glass the age of the wine. There's a variety of factors that influence the nose. And it's interesting because, in my opinion, South Africa are making some of the greatest Chardonnays in the world. That will please the Aussies. <laughs> yeah, so the second second wine. So the second one is we're looking at bottle ageing. Uh, what happens is that the wine continues to react from birth to being in the bottle. And this is really nicely illustrated by Riesling, which is another white wine grape. It's generally light in alcohol and has a, a refreshing, high, fruity, natural acidity. But as it ages, it has the ability to take on petrol notes, as in really? what you put in the car. Yeah, I've heard this. I think it's quite petrol. I've <laughs> not got that one yet. What's the why. octane rating of this? Well, not, not very high. So it's due to a trimethyl dihydronaphthalene and that... But that's mothballs, isn't it, naphthalene? Naphthalene, that, that yeah, really absolutely. Is. And it comes the... from some precursors that undergo acid hydrolysis. And the, the presence of these precursors really determines the wine's ability to age. And so a good Riesling will have these compounds to do this. So the first one is a young Riesling. So it's the Magpie Estate Rag and Bone Riesling, made in 2017, so it is young. Got a lovely perfume nose if you smell mm. it. It's peachy. It is. It's, it's limey, red You've got apples, a very good nose, Georgia. Yeah. You should be into wine you tasting. Should, you should. <laughs> you're, I am. <laughs> no, well, I mean professionally, not just amateur in your living option? room. <laughs> no, no, you 
Yeah, you're right. Yeah, mm. perfumed limey red apple nose, hence a pineapple floral. That, that's a nice wine. But you're saying that's a young wine, so that's this has a not young been wine. in the bottle very long. No, no, so 2017. Okay. It's a nice lively fruit, good acidity. And we compare that limes. with? So this is a Peter Learman Wigan Eden Valley Riesling. It was made in 2011. And if we give it a sniff... It really does it smell really of does. petrol. It that's really does. It really does. I find it even more kerosene than petrol, actually. Mm. If I put a match in this, would it explode? I've <laughs> never tried that reaction. Um, if I'm honest, though, having tasted this, mm. I prefer the young one. Yeah, it's interesting. Is that, so, do people tend to break is, down into two Yeah, kinds? it does divide people. So why is sitting in the bottle done that? So what, it's just a, a, literally an acid degradation of the carotene precursors, which then leads these precursors to take on the chemical that then gives you a sort of petrolly, diesely type smell. So there is this ongoing chemical process when they're in the bottle. So is there a sort of rule of thumb as to when a good time to drink a wine is? Do we know how different wines age? Because sometimes it's going to work, sometimes it's not going to work. It's complicated. longer, isn't it? You can predict according to how a wine is made. And and this is something that a lot of the winemakers actually specialise in. So they'll give you drinking dates. And it very much depends upon the wine, the winemaker and the, the vineyard. Shall we do our, our, our final, final test? Our final, our final test. test is this time we're looking at the combination of wine and food. So we have a red wine. It's a, a Rapasso Valpolicella. So it's an interesting wine because you partially dry the grapes first, then they ferment, and then they undergo a second fermentation. And Why should that make a, a difference then, drying them? It, drying them increases the sugar. Right. So you get a sweeter wine. And this wine has a sort of perfumed, rich nose with some cherry and oak. And if you taste it, cheers, you get a kind of chocolate, spicy, bittery type taste. Mm, it's certainly certainly got the spice there. And you can taste a little bit of sugar as well. Mm, this is. Peppery. So now um, you take a piece of cheese. We're being proffered some Shropshire blue Ooh. cheese. So this is... Oh, no, blue cheese. I don't know if we really like blue cheese. <laughs> right, blue cheese. This is not a bad one. Mm. OK, so now try the wine again. OK. Mm, the wine is enhanced, or the combination. Mm, the combination. So it becomes what, sweeter, yeah. It brings out the sweetness and it brings out the difference in the flavour, and that's because two different effects going on. So when you take the cheese, it's fatty, it coats your mouth, it lubricates your mouth. Whereas the wine, because of tannins in wine, they cause an astringency. And mm. what that effectively is, is the tannin molecules bind to the proteins in your mouth. This then makes your mouth feel dry. It kind of puckers up your tongue and puckers up your cheeks. And reduces the lubricant proteins that are present in saliva. So by having a combination of the oily lubricant with the astringency of the wine, you're then arriving at a new balance. So you change the flavour of everything in your mouth at the time. I think on that note, we've probably got everyone salivating. But uh, Claire, thank you very much. Claire Bryant from the University of Cambridge, an immunologist and erstwhile wine specialist. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Claire. Well, the good news is we have plenty of wine left over. So I think I'm going to go home and explore the science of wine and how well it goes with my fish dinner. Because rather appropriately, we're now going to finish the show by celebrating the super sensor of the animal world. Here's John Caprio from Louisiana State University, who's fished out a case for super tasters of the underwater realm, catfish. Just looking at a catfish with its long, whisker-like growths and lack of body scales, you would never guess that it has a superpower, the ability to actually taste its environment. From its whiskers, which have the highest density, to its tail, the catfish is coated in taste buds, unlike a human whose taste buds are limited to inside its mouth. A catfish is able to locate desirable food sources while avoiding bad-tasting materials in the water, even determining the direction of its food, all because it is a living, swimming tongue. Could you imagine being covered in taste buds? It's the perfect superpower if you're walking around a bakery. Not so great if you're in a public toilet, though. So where would we find one of these swimming tongues? Catfish include approximately 3,000 species of true bony fish that possess characteristic protrusions from their head, term whiskers, feelers, or barbels. Although some catfish live in salt water, the majority of species are found in freshwater. Adult catfish, depending upon the species, can be a few centimeters up to a few meters in length, and many are quite tasty to humans. But they'd probably taste the danger before you'd even got your fishing net out. But how do catfish taste their prey before they've even caught it? Back to John. A hungry catfish that is searching for dinner is attracted to amino acids, the building blocks of proteins. Those chemicals are naturally released by aquatic organisms, dissolve in the water, and indicate the presence of nearby food. 
With its taste bud-covered body, catfish can amazingly detect one part amino acid in a billion parts of water, which rivals the sensitivity of a shark nose. By contrast, a human tongue is at least 100,000 times less sensitive to amino acids and to many other foods. If we had to search for our meals using only our taste buds, we'd be hungry all the time. The swimming tongue, that is the catfish, meanwhile, would be eating well, unless, of course, its food happened to come with a fish hook. Let's hope not. Have you got a suggestion? If you want to put in your vote for an animal super sniffer for next week's show, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientist, or get in touch on the forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. Well, on that note, that is all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Becky Ford, Andrea Smith, Albert Reming, Claire Bryant and John Caprio. The producer was Izzy Clark. Next week, we're going to be poking our noses into the science of smells. Do join us then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening and from us here at The Naked Scientist. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.